So last week as we started chapter 4 in the book of Jonah, we looked deeper into the question that God had asked Jonah on the hillside uh, awaiting the destruction of, Jonah, of, of Nineveh. Jonah was on the hillside waiting that 40 days for Nineveh to be destroyed. And because God, in fact, didn't destroy Nineveh, because God acted in his sovereignty of grace, his action of loving who he will and forgiving who he will and blessing who he will, Jonah was ticked. Jonah was angry. Jonah was discouraged and, and depressed. And in fact, he was so angry that multiple times we're told that he wished he were dead, that he prayed that he would die. Yet God didn't grant that request. God continued to be patient with Jonah, acting and moving in ways to shape and mold him, in ways to get atten his, his attention to teach him and train him. Truly another act of God's grace, isn't it? When he just doesn't throw up his hands and say, fine, go your own way. Instead, he puts hurdles in our way and he, he hurls storms at us so that, that we might realize that, that God really truly does love us and that he wants what's best for us. And the question that God asked Jonah is a question that I believe we must all consider in those times of anger where we are reacting and responding from an attitude and position of unforgiveness and hate, and that question that we looked at last week was, do I have the right to be angry? Is it my right to be angry, especially at how God acts and how God chooses to act in his sovereign grace? And this morning, as we close out this series on the book of Jonah, we turn to the last question that God asked. It is an odd way to end a book. There's the question and then there's no answer. We don't hear anything else about Jonah. How did he respond to the question? Did he answer it? Did he just, what happened to him? We don't know. We don't know. If you would turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter four. It's in the last third of the Old Testament. Jonah chapter four. And again, this morning, as I did last week, I want to begin by reading chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah replies. 
And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Should I not be concerned for that great city? That was God's question. And it's, it, it, it's in this, this moment, it seems that Jonah is more concerned and more focused on his comfort, on, on what he wants, that than, than things that are truly more important. I mean, isn't the salvation of a hundred and some thousand people more important than, than his comfort in the heat? I, I would say yes, here in this nice, warm, comfortable place. It's easy for us to say why. Why, why didn't you respond in the, the way that we would expect a prophet of God to respond? He's, he's hot, the plant that truly gave him some relief, is gone. I mean, it was a blessing from God in a moment, that plant. Jonah could learn something from Job here, couldn't he? Reminds me of Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, when Job had just had everything taken from him, everything. It says at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in what? In worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Boy, how Jonah's attitude would have been different if he had prayed that prayer of Job instead of, I just really want to die. Now, we know that over a period of time, a long time, Jonah's, or Job's suffering brought him to the place, too, where, where he was exhausted and tired and discouraged. But God never gives up on us. He, he never, ever gives up. And, and so the simple answer to the last question that God asked in the end of Jonah chapter 4 is what? Uh, of course he should. Of course God should be concerned about that great city. He is concerned about that great city and every other great city after that. Every small city. Every tiny city. Just as he is for every one of us because our first point this morning is that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Does that sound familiar? To, to some of you it may not, but others it may because it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul, encouraging a young missionary and a pastor who is going off into the mission field, says these words to him, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving may be made for all people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For all people, all people have the right to believe. All people have the right to believe. And this is based on certain clear emphasis of the word of God itself. For example, God commands every human being to believe. No one is exempt from that. In order for us to, to have a restored relationship with God, we must believe. 
We have the right to come to Christ. No one is exempt from the command. Whoever we are, because God commands us to come to Christ. We also have the right, because of God's offer and invitation, to come to Christ. Turn to me and be saved, God, Jesus said. All, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's Isaiah 45, verse 22. If you look in your notes, you're like, man, holy smokes. Pastor Dave gave us a lot of verses this morning. I did, because those are all great verses in relation to what I'm talking about. I'm not covering them all this morning. I don't have time. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened. Is there anybody on the planet that is never worried or burdened? It's everyone, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Come to me, come to me. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. The offer was absolutely universal. The invitation is to all. There's also a universal divine promise. The promise is this, if we believe we shall be saved. That's a promise, that, that we find that in scripture. That is God's promise. Now, it is a conditional promise. The reward is conditional upon our believing. Belief. But God's promise is assuredly made. If we turn to God in Christ, we shall be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 explains it. 1 John, uh, 1 John 1, 9 and 10 explains it. It's very clear. I tell you these things, John says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and, and we, we need to remember that this salvation is absolutely gratuitous. It is gratuitous. We receive the water of eternal life freely. We, we receive it without money, without price, without effort. Paul describes it this way in the book of Romans. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Jesus had to take on, only a perfect sacrifice could take on the punishment of our sin. And Jesus did that very thing. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. He, he did it, verse 26, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There are, there are some reformed preachers that went to great lengths to express the fact that every human being, no matter how sinful, has the right to come and take Christ as their Savior. Uh, they were totally sold out to the theological truth 
of predestination, but they also equally believed in the free universal offer of the gospel. John Duncan is one of those men, and he put it this way, sin is the handle by which I get Christ. And he went on, I don't read anywhere in God's word that Christ came to save John Duncan. But I read this, he came to save sinners, and John Duncan is a sinner, and that means he came to save John Duncan. Martin Luther argued in the same way. He said, and and he says this as if he's speaking to the devil, and and I took a few of his old English words out here. Um, You say I am a sinner. He's saying this to, to the enemy, Satan. And I will take your own weapon, and with it I will slay you, and with thine own sword I will cut your throat, because sin ought to drive us not away from Christ, but towards Christ. This weapon that the enemy wants to wield at you to discourage you and say there's no hope, there's no hope, there's no hope. That same weapon, that sin should drive us not away from Christ, but to him because that's, where, that's the only place that we can go is to Jesus Christ. Yes, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth and salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. How then does that apply to us on a daily basis? What, where do we work that out in, in, our every, in our everyday life? Well, it should, above all, challenge all of us to do some internal in, inspection. Where am I in regards to this? Uh, what, where is my spirit? Where is my attitude? I, am, I, am I just angry at people or, or whatever? Um, I, I think we need to ask a question that it would have been good for Jonah to ask and answer himself in order to stop him on his path to discouragement and hate towards the Ninevite people. And that's exactly what it was. He hated those people. He did not want them. He, He wanted them destroyed. The question is this. It's number two in your notes. Is there anything we are more concerned about in our lives than our concern to see unbelieving people become fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a very intimate and personal question and and we must remember that there is a spiritual battle raging around us and among us. Our enemy, the devil, does not want us to get rid of all of those things and all of those distractions that are keeping us from sharing the love of Jesus Christ with a neighbor, a friend, or praying for someone. He wants to keep us flying down the the highway of life on cruise control, not even seeing needs to our left and to our right. Only, he only wants us to see ourselves. And of course, um, that's very easy to do in our our culture. Our our culture is, is full of, it's my money and I want it now, phrases. It's, It's a culture of, if it's in the way of my future, then I will just delete it from my life, no matter what consequences it has for that thing or that person. If it's in my way for my future, I'm deleting it. It's all about me, my fun, my job, my income, mine, 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 mine. Reminded me of this picture from um, a Disney movie. You can probably, those of you that have seen it can probably hear them say, mine, 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 which um, we can be so self-centered, can't we? I, 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 oh boy, I know I can. So much that we want to change God's word to meet 
our needs. We, we want to interpret things that are in the Bible, or we may come across something that, and, and we're like, whoa, 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 that, that can't say that. Because that, that has these kind of consequences for me. And, and I, I, so we, we either ignore it or we change it. So if you're that type of person, there's a new app out that um, I just wanted to show you in case you... Tired of the Bible not meeting your needs? Want the scripture to better revolve around your lifestyle? Well, you've heard of the YouVersion Bible app introducing the Me Version. Feel free to read the Bible without having to feel convicted. My favorite verse in the Me Version Bible is Matthew 7.1. Thou shalt not judge. Unless they voted for a different political candidate. Other favorites include, therefore, if a brother has sinned against you, post about it on the internet. And ye are without sin, so cast all the stones you want. Thanks, Me Version. This is great. Don't like something? Change it yourself. Me Version is the world's first editable Bible. All your favorite verses just updated to reflect modern life. Like, give us this day our daily gluten-free bread, and I will deliver you into the land flowing with almond milk and ethnically harvested honey. Finally, a Bible that justifies my lifestyle, not the other way around. Most read passages include, before you check the speck in your brother's eye, remember that you do not have a plank in your own eye. And forgive us our trespasses, as we literally never forgive anyone who trespasses against us. Tired of feeling guilt? Enter areas that you struggle, and we'll remove those verses completely. The Bible says all scripture is God-breathed, and useful and useful for taking out of context to justify your actions. Thanks, Me Version. I wish I would have known about this sooner. The Me Version Bible app turned the truth into your truth. Available now in the App Store and Google Play. Yeah, right? Ouch. Isn't that where Jonah was? I mean, he, he wanted God to act in the way that he wanted him to. And when God acted actually in, in the true way that God promised that he would act, he's ticked, he's angry, he's upset, he's discouraged. That happens to us too. And isn't that where the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son uh, was as well? Uh, turn there if you would. Whoa. Turn there if you would, uh, Luke chapter 15. And, and we're going to see that this elder son, after his brother returned home, was really thinking about himself, his rights, his, uh, maybe even he felt like he had some kind of special privilege because he stayed home and his younger brother didn't. You know, he was faithful, his brother wasn't. He was more faithful to his father than his brother. Don't we sometimes think that? in regard to our relationship with Jesus Christ and relation to other people that we know, our neighbors, our friends, our family members that we don't like or that are acting in a way contrary to, to the way we, we think they should act. Maybe he thought he was more of a son. Verse 24, Luke chapter 15, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked, well, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. He won't even call him his brother. This son of yours. He is so wrapped up in himself, in his anger, in his pride, in his arrogance, in his ungratefulness. And as believers, we must be aware of our own bent to do the same. To be angry when our enemies come to know Jesus. Even when our theology is right, we know that Jesus died for them too. We know that God loves them too, though we can't understand why. And we fail to see that he loves us. And we think of, well, you know, I'm, I'm a great guy. Of course he would love me. We have to beware. It's easy to become angry when our enemies come to know Jesus even when we know that God is gracious and generous and forgiving. So we have to wage war against that, against being comfortable being the older brother. We can't grow comfortable being the older brother. Um, there's three things that I think help us in that, uh, help us to not be the older brother. The first one is to fully surrender to Jesus. And that's, that's a daily, that I'm not talking about belief, I'm talking about lordship. And though those things are tied next to each other, very closely, um, it, it's a daily exercise to surrender things in my life to Jesus, worshiping, acknowledging God's absolute power over everything, submitting to all things, everything that we read, everything that we know from God's word, practicing the presence of God, acting out the one another's of scripture, loving one another, forgiving one another, serving one another. And that list goes on. The second thing is to serve others. That helps us with that bad attitude. Serving others is a way to put our actions where our mouths are from the smallest act. And, and if, if you're not used to serving others, you don't think that way, you don't, you know, you get to the end of the day and you can't think of one person that you helped, take a tiny step. Look, everybody goes to some kind of public restroom in, in the course of a day at some time. When you wash your hands like I know you do before you walk out of that bathroom, pull an extra paper towel or two and wipe down the sink before you open the door and leave. That's a simple, easy way to serve the people who own that bathroom. Now, you may think, well, the next guy's just gonna mess it up. Well, so what? Maybe the owner goes in there after you were in there and goes, wow. Somebody wipe this down. How kind of them. Um, maybe it's being kind to the waitress who is slow to wait on your table because they're short-staffed and he or she is taking care of eight tables. But, but we can get to thinking of only ourselves and how it's taking, taken 
20 minutes for them to take our order, been there, and, and, and you know, instead of looking around and observing what's going on in the restaurant that they might, just might be short-staffed, my waitress is also bussing tables, is also checking people out at the register. So here, here's an easy way to do that. When you go to any restaurant, plan on being there for an hour, even if it's the drive-through of McDonald's, because... Like, what are those people ordering? For their whole block? We get that way. Or, or we get behind somebody that's driving slower or they're driving the speed limit. And we think, man, I gotta be somewhere. I gotta gain that 25 seconds that I'm gonna get by risking my life and everybody else on the road by passing them on a double line. I mean, we... we that's, those are ways that the enemy, that the enemy gets us angry, gets us angry, gets us angry, and then we tran transfer that onto other people. Being patient at an airport or in a line at a box store is another way, honestly, that we can serve others because the person in front of you or, from, or standing behind you prefers to see a smiling face as opposed to somebody that's cussing the person that's checking you out or whatever. I mean, that's a way to serve other people. It's easy. But in our culture, it's, it seems like it's hard to do. Fixing a tire, and, and they didn't fix, he didn't fix the tire. There was a hole in the tire the size of your fist. Um, you know, Cheryl called and said, this was like a 315 here. Hey, we got a flat tire. And I'm like, well, I know there wasn't a spare in the trailer. Let me call you back. So I called my cousin, who, you know, I'm great friends with. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, well, not much at the moment. I said, <laughs> I need a lifeline. You know, some would say wrong answer, but. <laughs> no, I said, hey, let me, let me give, I'm gonna, here's, here's Cheryl's phone number, call her, she can tell you where they're at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and he sends me a picture of the tire and says they're just gonna patch it, and I laughed, and, and uh, so we took it to a shop, they put a new tire on it, put Cheryl and Megan in his own house so they could hang out while he's doing all of this stuff, and, and, uh, and so I, I texted him, I'm like, hey, dude, um, did Cheryl pay for the tire or did you pay for the tire? And he's like, weird thing. He said, they were giving out free tires today. <laughs> he told Cheryl they had a buy none, get one free deal going on. Look, small ways that we can serve others. We can be willing to help when somebody calls. We can say, you know what, okay, I'll drop what I'm doing in some cases, in some ways, we can't. That's where I was at. What I was doing, I couldn't not do. So I couldn't, I, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't really going to drive an hour and 15 minutes to fix, to change a tire. I would have found somebody to do it. But he just did. We need to treat others like we like to be treated, <laughs> with grace and mercy. And a third way we can wage war against selfish attitudes is to pray for others. Pray for others. And, and I mean, I don't mean just those that we love, but those that we don't. Uh, and to make a serious effort to be genuine as we do. It, it, uh, to make and take some time for our hearts to move in the direction of God's sovereign grace. That's what happens when we pray for those that we don't. It, 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 it shouldn't be for a lack of trying. 
that we don't pray for others. Pray for that person that mistreated you. Pray, pray that they would know the saving grace and forgiveness of God. Pray for those who hate Israel. Pray, pray, for, pray that they too would come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you think, why on earth would I do that? And that's exactly where Jonah was. Jonah knew the Ninevite people. He knew because of prophecy what they were gonna do to his people. And God, instead of destroying them, saved them. But only because they repented and turned from their wicked ways. Uh, in many ways, it's easy to pray for Israel, and we do and we should, but we should also pray for the safety of those citizens of the Gaza Strip, and we should also pray for Hamas, that they would know and believe the one true God. That is what would change their life and the life of all of those who are around them. But we, but we almost don't because we think, well, they never would believe. And so we make the decision for them, and we do that, I'm afraid, probably every day with people that we talk to on the street. We make the decision for them. We say, well, they wouldn't be interested, so I'm not gonna say, something, say, say anything about it. We, you don't know. I mean, all these boxes that are going to these other countries, Story, a Huckabee had somebody on his show the other night who, who, who was a kid who, who got a box and came to Christ. And, and I mean, he's, I don't where was he from, Cheryl? Like Uganda or some, it was an African nation. Completely changed his life, a Christmas box. Should I not be concerned for that great city? The Ninevites were equally terrorizing and murderous, yet God extended his sovereign grace to them. Hard as it is, let's pray for others, even those that we don't like. Those actions will help bring our hearts and attitudes into sync with God's actions and plans, and it also brings us into sync in action and mission with those who are sitting around us here on a Sunday morning, taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them directly on the kingdom of God. Number three, we must also submit to the fact that God the creator is in control of all that he made. That's not a blind leap. That's not blind faith. That's faith on truth. And that just is. He is. And nothing's going to change that. And, and we don't know exactly where he is in this this control and in his plan for our world, maybe it's step eight of 10, maybe it's 40 of 50, I don't know, but we can trust him completely. As Christ followers, we don't have to fear. Just trust and walk with him in faith to the very end, either the very end of your life or the very end of the world, whichever comes first. Either way, when we're walking with Jesus, we don't have to fear. And then I have one more truth to point out as we wrap up the book of Jonah. And it's this. Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Now, that is hard. Really? Galatians 2.16, I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. There's the love more or less for what we do. 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. For it is by grace you have been saved in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling and, and, and getting a sense that Jesus is drawing you to himself and that you need to take that step to believe, that is him acting on your behalf. He is drawing you to himself. It's not because you have done anything or you haven't done anything. It's because he loves you. And he paid the price for that sin that's in your life, for that those things that are discouraging you, that, that stuff that, that weighs your shoulders down. Now, I came across a, a name last week that I hadn't heard in years. The name is George Verwer, and he was a speaker that I heard at a missions conference in 1987, and he founded a, an organization called Operation Mobilization, which is a Christian missions organization that focused on motivating and recruiting people to go overseas as missionaries. Uh, and I think mainly to the 1040 window. And, and the 1040 window is a rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. And they call this area the resistant belt. And it includes the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. Now that may be changing. That was a long time ago. Um, but having done all that God wanted him to do, George died just this past year in April. He was 85. Um, in his last book, George quotes from Missionary Monthly, and he says, he says this, possibly 80% of all missionaries are being sent to areas of the world where the church is already planted. 80% going to places in the world where the church is already planted. He wrote um, this book, Out of the Comfort Zone, 19 years ago. And I'm sure its message is still relevant today. He goes on to say that the urgent need is for a majority of new missionaries. And he was, he was personally, specifically praying for 200,000 missionaries to be sent to areas where the gospel has not yet been preached. At least, at least where the need is greater than where the church already exists. And each local congregation could help to direct missionary resources by setting the goal of helping to send and support missionaries assigned to pioneer areas of the world. Something that I like about this church, and I'm sure we could always do better, is, is the fact that 22% of your general giving on a Sunday morning goes to missions. We don't, we don't keep that here. Some of that does go to missions in, in Wyoming, Goshen County. Some of it goes to national missions, and some of it goes to worldwide missions. But, but it's our church tithe to the, to the work of God. 200,000 he was praying for because, because he said that's what we need. We, we need to be hand in hand with the goal of raising large numbers of new workers, a, new, a number of things, and he says that a number of things are imperative, and, and he says some of the same things that we've been talking about and focusing on for the last two or three months, and I'm gonna do this really quickly. First of all, he says, we need a, a greater renewal and reality in our churches. Christians moving on from a superficial walk with, the, with God to one which accepts the challenges that God gives them. To minister outside the walls, to go visit somebody, to go to another country. 
and be a missionary. Second, he said, we need a grace awakening, practicing the presence of God, a renewed emphasis on the kind of love which 1 Corinthians speaks about. He said, I believe that unless we have more of that big heartedness towards one another, individuals and organizations, large numbers of new workers will not become a reality. It just won't happen because we become inward focused. We don't focus on people outside. We need every member of the body of Christ, he says. Third, a greater discipline is needed in prayer, in studying the word of God, and in giving. Three basic godly activities cannot be separated from other visions that God has given us. And finally, we must be aware of allowing negative thinking to kill our creativity or vision. The kind of negative thinking that builds a little shelter and sits in it and says, oh, I think I'd be better off dead. Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. So as we close this morning and, and as we sing the song, if the worship team would come up, Christmas offering. And we consider what action God took to save us. Let's consider what action God took to save you and me. And let's worship him and consider the question, should I not be concerned? Should I not be concerned for that great city or that neighbor or that fellow coworker or that family member? Maybe it is in another country. Maybe it's right here where you're planted today. Should I not be concerned? For those who don't know Christ, let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us the things like the vines and the shelters and dreams and schemes that are in the way of our reaching those great cities and people for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we look at Jonah running away and, and we see ourselves. And, and I, I, I think that many of us are prepared to admit that. Running away from the opportunities of tomorrow and into the routine of our lives, back in the Nineveh to which you've sent us, looking for boats, planes, and trains, and anything else that will get us off to some place where we don't have to do that to which you have called us to do. For some here this morning, that might just be belief. Taking a step that says, I surrender. I surrender all to you, Jesus. I, I believe in you, that you were a historical figure who came, that you are God. Forgive me. Adopt me. Change my life. Lord, maybe, it's, it's, maybe you need to wake up the church. Maybe we're tempted to sidestep the sleeping prophet underneath the deck, but it looks a lot like our, our church is asleep while the world rants and raves and wonders how it's going to stop itself from capsizing. Lord, wake us up. Help us to hear the words, how can you sleep at a time like this? Help us to hear the words, don't you have a role to play? And then with embarrassment and shame, may, may we not be cast over the side of the boat and May we walk back into the city as Jonah does and do what you ask us to do and 
may we not be offended and angry when you exercise your sovereign grace and you forgive and you draw people unto yourself. Help us to help people see that Jesus said, come to me. Help us to go to you. God, thank you for the, the compassion that you've had for, for me and for us. And I pray that you would help us to recognize how much as, as followers of Jesus Christ we have truly been forgiven so that we're not surprised when you forgive someone else. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. I pray that you would prompt us and help us and encourage us to, to be generous and, and to serve others and to proclaim the good news of the gospel and, and to worship and to pray. Thank you for the season that we're entering into. May it go a long ways in refocusing our hearts and our minds and checking our attitudes and our spirits. And now, Lord, we, we worship you with this final song, these truths about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.